Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. in the last couple days and I've been bragging on y'all and telling how thankful I am that you've been reading the Bible for yourselves and that you've been gleaning from it and you've been telling me about it. That's an encouragement. That's what we want. Well, today I'm going to be setting aside my normal format. I'm usually a strict expositionalist where I just take the Bible line upon line. But in this context, we want to understand context, we're hitting a historical event. And if you don't mind, I'm going to transport us more from a church service to more of a history class. I'm a history teacher by nature. I love history. And so if you don't mind, I'm going to turn this a little bit more into a history class. And at the very end, we're going to go back and we're going to tie it to the Bible and still pull a Bible application from it. But I want to show you how amazing God is and that there's a God who knows what he's doing. So if you wouldn't mind, take your copy of the word of God and turn with me to the book of Esther in chapter number two. The book of Esther in chapter number two And notice with me, starting at verse 1. Esther chapter 2 and verse 1. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, notice the first phrase in chapter 2, after these things. And I'd like to show you some of the things that happened After these things, there is a three-year span between uh, Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. And so there's plenty of things that can happen within those three years. And I would like to tell you a little bit about that. As we hit this idea, and we're going to hit the historical event, the last stand of the 300. That's the specific historical event we're going to happen or that we're going to hit. The last stand of the 300, some other people will call it the Battle of Thermophili, but the last stand of the 300 is a little bit more colorful. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you now, I'm just asking that you would just open this up and that we can see in the light of history that it is all your story. And that you're in control, that you know what you're doing, you know how to set things in order, and you could use these events to get across what we enjoy today. I'm just asking that by the time we're done, once again, we would say, wow, what a God, what a God. Lord, in something like this, I would be tempted to depend upon my own ability, but I know that I have none. So the best I know how, I'm asking that you would clear my mind that you would take over and that you would get this across for the purpose of glorifying your own name as we cover this historical event. Be with me, fill me with your spirit, and let it not be about me, let it be all about you. In your name we pray, amen. As I just mentioned, between the book of in the book of Esther, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, is a several-year gap. Between three to four years, whatever it is, it's a several-year gap. Of course, we know that 
that Esther chapter 1 was talking about a big long party that the king was having. And this big long party was in preparation to almost like a, a spirit rally, a, a pep rally, to rally the troops up because they are about to go invade Greece with the purpose and the goal of destroying the city of Athens. Now, 10 years before, this had already been attempted. That King Darius, who was in charge then, had decided that he was going to destroy and, and to punish the people of Greece. You see, he had a vast empire. Darius had built an empire that stretched all the way up from Europe to Russia. It stretched all the way from Egypt to India. It was a vast empire. And on one of his borders, on the coast of Turkey, was a land called the Ionian coast. And not only did he own it, but that there was Greek settlers who had also had settled on that coast, on the Ionian coast. Well, Athens decided they were going to poke the bear, and they encouraged the colonists to rebel against the Persian Empire and to show their own dominance. And so they funded and they encouraged... And so what happened is that the Greek colonist on the coast of Turkey burnt down one of the capital and religious cities of Sardis. And they did it as a symbolic rebellion, a protest against the Persian Empire. Well, when that happened, it was like slapping a giant bear. You see, Xerxes is cons or Darius, the emperor at that time, is considered a god. He is also the master of a large empire. And to have these little pipsqueak colonists slap him in the face and burn down a holy and a regional capital is a very big insult. And so in order to punish them, he had a desire to go and destroy them. Now, his first attempt was stopped at the Battle of Marathon, which we've already discussed before as preparatory to the, to the series of Esther. And we know that the Greeks were able to fend off the Persians. Now, during this 10-year span, Darius spent the rest of his life as, as Persian emperor to raise troops, to train troops, to prepare the treasury, to prepare the whole empire for war. And now Xerxes is in charge and he's going to carry out his father's wishes. Now at this time, Greece is not a united front. The Greece is split up into little things called city-states. And that there were hundreds of city-states throughout Greece. And usually they were fighting against each other. They were little pipsqueaks at this time. In fact, just to give a comparison, between all of the Greek city-states, there was probably between about uh, 500 to 600,000 people in all of Greece. Meanwhile, the Persian Empire had millions and millions of people. So there was a vast difference. Persia is organized. Greece is separate. Now two of the leaders of the city-states was Athens and Sparta. Now Athens was very important to us as history because it was the birthplace of Western democracy. It was the birthplace. It had developed into a republic. In fact, most of our country's government is based off of the things that was formed in Athens. From government, constitution, laws, courts. All of this is based off of what the Athenians had started. 
Now, in contrast to the Athenians, you had the Spartans. If I could use a cultural reference, you could may say like this in today's culture that the Athenians were the federation, if you're a Star Trek person. They're the federation. The Spartans were the Klingons. Again, a cultural reference. Some of you may know that, some not. But the Spartans came from a warlike society. Honor and war was everything. And their society was quite different than the Athenian society. You see, in order to, to <coughs> set up, <coughs> excuse me, in order to, to start off as a Spartan, everything was dedicated to the state. Everything was dedicated to help the glory of Sparta. So when a baby was born, the very first trial that the baby would have to, to engage in is once he was born, they would have an elder inspect the brand new baby. And if there was any blemishes, if there was anything wrong with the baby, they would immediately get rid of it. After that, after it passed the first test, what they would do is they would set the baby down on a mountainside overnight and walk away. And if the baby survived the night, he might just make it as a Spartan. That's day one. They were raised in, a, in a, a society where everything was war. At seven years old, a Spartan male would be taken away from his home and sent to a war school. And there they were taught how to fight. They were taught how to defend themselves. They were taught how, how to be a man. In fact, one of the, the strange customs, at least it would be strange to us, is what they would do is they would have public whippings of groups of boys. And their parents were invited to watch. And they would take whips and, and the boys would hold on to pillars. And they would take the whips and whip the children on their backs. And the parents would be cheering them on. Don't you pass out. Don't give up. You hold on. Be a man. That's a little bit different from our society now, which they coddle children. <laughs> but this was a different society. They were made and grew up for war. These were men who were prepared to fight. The Athenians were more in politics, and they, they had a whole big rivalry with Sparta. But when they realized that the Persians were coming, they decided that they were going to band together. And by the way... If a big bear was coming for you, would you find the biggest warriors and say, please help us? And that's exactly what they did. The king of Sparta at this time was Leonidas. Leonidas had grew up in this warlike society, had grew up to be a true Spartan man, and Sparta was looking for glory. He was told in by a vision of an oracle at Delphi, that in order for him to save Sparta, uh, his, a king would have to die. So he knew, as he was preparing against this fight, that he more likely was not coming back. In fact, in the Spartan society, a mother would come to, to her son and hand him his shield, and she would say the phrase, with the shield or on the shield. You see, the deal was, is that a Spartan was to come back in victory or come back dead carried on a shield. That was their warlike society, and that's what they were expected. In fact, there was only two ways you could get a gravestone inside of Sparta to be honored. Either you died in battle, or you were a lady who died in childbirth giving birth to a son 
or to a child. Both of them were both given your life to the state of Sparta. Different society, isn't it? So we have King Leonidas who gathers up. He gathers 300 Spartans. And that was all that was allowed by the Spartan government to, to bring with him. And he gathered a ragtag group of a couple of thousand. Some people say 7,000 Greeks. Meanwhile, Xerxes had an army of close to a million plus. So that's a pretty lopsided battle, isn't it? 7,000 versus 1 million troops. That's a quite a bad outnumbering. Now, as Xerxes is preparing to come over, they have the entire Black Sea that surrounds. They have to go up through Turkey, go up around and go into Europe. But in between, there's a waterway that, that is close to where Europe and Asia meet that's only a mile across. So Xerxes could either take two years to march along the Black Sea and to conquer everyone as he went, or he could try to walk on water. What they did is that the Persians lined up 700 ships in a row and anchored them down and then tied them together with cords of papyrus and linen that would strengthen up with a strong cord like a cable. Each of these strips would weigh one ton and they would uh, have several sections where they would, for one mile, put this big bridge where all the troops went across. Now, as they were coming across, the Greeks realized that they were going to have to pick their battleground. And so they picked the mountainous pass of Thermopylae. Thermopylae is a big, huge pass with a cliff on one side and then another cliff on this side going down to the water. It was a narrow pass. And so the, the Spartans realized what they could do is hold them off. Now, on one side, you have King Leonidas, who was raised in a warrior cult and a warrior kingdom ready for battle. But Xerxes himself is not a slouch. Xerxes not only is considered a god, he was trained as a warrior. And as a teenager, what he had to do to prove that he was worthy is they locked him inside of a courtyard and by himself they set a lion in there and he had to kill a lion by himself to prove that he was a warrior king. So Xerxes himself was also a warrior. He knew how to win battles. And so they begin. As tradition was, the Persians sent an envoy to Leonidas and to the Spartans to say, give up, you are greatly outmatched, you are outnumbered. There is no way you could win. Leonidas declined and says, we will fight. The envoy says, then if that's your wish, there will be so many arrows that it will darken the sun. Leonidas gave the classic response, then I guess we'll fight in the shade. And so they set up the battle. As they set up the battle, the, the Spartans and the Greeks line up in what is called a phalanx. In a phalanx formation, what happens is they have these huge shields. And what they do is they stand side by side and they lock the shield so one shield interlocks with the other one to build a great long foundation. And then they would have the people behind them put the shields on top of them. So it's almost a big wall of shields. And so the Persians would begin their, their fight. They would 
run up against the, the Spartans and the, <coughs> the Greeks. And they would begin to fight. However, the <coughs> Spartans were able to defeat and kill hundreds and thousands of, <coughs> of Persian, or Persians as they went the first day. The battle continued to go in waves and all day they fought. And their Persians were not able to make any headway. Meanwhile, there is another man by the name of Demistocles. If you're thinking military-wise, you're thinking, why don't they put ships and put it on the other side? Well, that's because the Greeks also have a navy. Now, they're outnumbered five to one. So every five Persian ships, there's only one Greek ship. And they're once again outnumbered. But he is also holding the Persians off to keep them from sailing around. In fact, there's a group of, of Persians that sail around the island of Eroweba. That's a cool name. And there's a storm that comes that sinks 200 ships as they try to go around. The rest of them are stuck in a fight with Themistocles. On the second day, Xerxes says, let's stop playing around. And what he does, he's, he brings his special forces up to battle. The special forces of the Persians are called immortals. And they are specially trained to strike fear into the hearts of their opponents. The way that they're dressed is they have a special armor. But what's weird, unusual, is that they have a black cloth that covers their face. And what happens is that they seem faceless and they are trained not to utter a sound. Not even when they get hurt. So what it looks like is almost like a ghost army that doesn't speak, that has no face. They're covered um, with a black cloth. Of course, they're, they're wearing the other uh, parts of their, their armor. And so as they approach, they approach silently, not talking, no facial movements as they come. And the immortals have been used, used to win Battles for the Persians, victory after victory after victory. This team goes up against Leonidas and the rest of the Spartans. And once again, the battle continues to rage. And the <laughs> Spartan defense continues to hold. And finally, the second day is ended. With bodies piled up. Of course, what the, in between each of the movements, they would actually have to send runners to come and get the bodies out of the way so that way the troops could continue to go forward. It was not looking good. On the third night, however, a Greek spy told Xerxes that there was a mountain pass over Thermopylae and that what they could do was they could march troops and run them behind the Greeks. And now the Greeks would not be able to, to defend. When it was found out that Leonidas understood that, that Xerxes was going to come behind him, he began to put an exit strategy and start moving some of the remaining Greek troops out. But Leonidas and the 300 Spartans, they decided they were going to make a stand and they were going to buy as much time to allow the rest of the Greek soldiers to go ahead and, and to buy enough time to clear Athens out and to let them know that the Persians were coming. On the third day, Xerxes did come and this time he put a pincher movement where he had troops before and troops after and they squished the 
the Leonidas and the Spartans together in this major battle. And it was there that every single Greek troop that remained was killed. You said, well, what good did that do for three days? Well, that three days of delaying did some important things. Demistocles went back with his troops and they evacuated the city of Athens. And they brought everyone else to a different place and prepared a counter-movement. When Xerxes finally came to Athens, his main goal was to burn it down. He went to Athens and there's no one left. So he burns the city down, but it was kind of empty. It's kind of like no one's here. No one gets to see me as the victor. And after a couple more skirmishes, Xerxes says, all right, that's enough. And he goes home. Now the Greeks, because they were able to retreat back, because they were able to, to preserve what they had, they were able to rebuild their society. And what happened a little bit later is that there was a man from Macedon who helped unite the Greek city-states, and he formed a brand new fighting force called Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had never lost a battle. And it was under Alexander the Great that he defeated the Persians, granted 200 years from this event, but he came, or 100 and something years, almost 200 years after this event, but he came and he destroyed the Persian Empire. And you say, why go through the history lesson? Well, first of all, because of context, I want to let you know what is going on in between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. Remember, Xerxes comes home. He's been divorced. He got rid of Vashti. He comes home after a military battle. He burned down Athens, sure, but it was kind of empty. And he looks around and says, you know, it'd be really nice to have a queen right now. And so begins the event, starting in Esther chapter 2. After three years, he comes back. And he's ready to, no, he's no longer with the goal of destroying Greece. He's now coming back to be emperor. He's ready to settle down and to control the empire that he has. And that sets it up. The second thing I want to put, not only context, but I want to show you how good God is. Turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to the book of Daniel. If you're in Esther right now, just keep turning the other direction. Esther, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Then you come to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Then you come to the book of Ezekiel. And finally, the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, God uses Daniel in a special way. And in Daniel chapter number 8, we can see that God is giving Daniel a glimpse of the future. And as Daniel is getting a glimpse of the future, God is showing him what is going to happen in the future, dealing with Persia and dealing with Greece. And I want to show you how accurate God is and show you that God is in control of everything. The whole theme of Esther is for such a time as this. Which has the idea that God puts pieces together. He puts people in positions because he knows what's going to happen. Do you know what happened if Greece had been destroyed by the Persians? We would not have America. Do you know that if the Greeks and Xerxes had destroyed Athens with all of its people in there? we would not have the democracy or the republic that we have. We would not have the freedoms or the courts. You see, God knows what he's doing. Look with me in 
Daniel chapter 8. And notice with me in verse number 1. Daniel chapter 8 and verse number 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace. Remember what we were talking about Shushan? Right now, Persia is not an empire. Right now, Babylon is the empire, and it is ruling the world. But here, God is taking them to Shushan, the palace. Notice as it goes on which is in the province of Elam, which is going to be Persia. And I saw in a vision, and I was in the river, Uli. And I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before a river a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast stand before him, neither and neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and become, became great. And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat from the west in the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And the he, and he came to the ram that had two horns, and I had seen standing before the river and ran up unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was moved with a collier against him, and smote the ram and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he did cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, for it came up four notable ones up toward the four winds of heaven. Let's pause here. And you say, all right, preacher, I thought you were going to show us prophecy. All we got here was a he-goat, or a he-goat over here. And then over here you had a ram, and it had two horns, and one was twisted, and one was higher than the other one. And What in the world? You said you, we're going to get something out of this. How does this work out? Well, the good thing is, is I don't have to interpret things. I don't have to come up with my imagination. God gives it to us. Notice, if you wouldn't mind, God tells us what this all means and verse number 20. And verse number 20, Daniel did the same thing that you and I would have done. Shook her head and say, um, I don't understand. And God says, all right, fine. Let me tell you what it is. Good. And notice if you wouldn't mind as, as he's getting the interpretation in verse number 20. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grisha. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now being broken, whereas the four stood up, and four kingdoms shall stand up out of the power of the nation, but not in his power. Now, Daniel is speaking in about 536 B.C. I'm going to use dates for you just to show. The battle of the 300 happened about 480 B.C., and Alexander the Great conquers Persia in 332 B.C. So if we're in 536 when this is being written, he is recording an event that is not going to happen for another 200 years. 
In fact, remember what I told you during the battle of the the 300, that Greece is full of a bunch of city-states that are fighting against each other, and there's only half a million people within all of Greece. It's not big in the light of history or world events. It's a backwater town, a backwater nation, or series of nations, backwater cities at the time that this is being said. But God says, guess what? This is what's going to happen. Turn back with me to Daniel chapter 8. And knowing that the the two-horned ram is Persia and that the he-goat is Alexander the Great, let's go back and see this. Now, once again, God brings him to the palace at Shushan, which is going to be a capital city of Persia. And notice again in verse number three. And I lifted up mine eyes and saw there was stood before a river a ram which had two horns. And two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. Now, what in the world is this? Well, we know it's Persia, not just Persia, but Median Persia. In history, Media was always the dominant nation. After that came Persia, which came the Persian Empire, which became more in charge for the empire. And that's all it's talking about is that Persia came up last, but was more powerful than media, but it's the same place, media, Persia. Verse number four, and I saw the ram pushing westward. Remember, he pushed all the way up to to, um, Greece. The Persian empire went to Greece and it went northward all the way towards Russia and southward. It went all the way down to India and to Egypt. This is a big empire. Just like the Bible said. And neither was there any that could deliver out of their hand. But he did according to his will and became great. Verse number four. There's no one going to stop the Persians. The Persians are going to rule and dominate. They're going to conquer everyone. They're even going to defeat Greece. Which they did and they burnt down Athens. They took over everything and there's no one that's going to stop them. Until a little bit later, verse number five. And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. So here we know, according to verse 20 and 21, this is Alexander the Great. And he came to the ram that had two horns. And I saw him stand before the river and ran into him with a fury of his power. I want you to imagine a big ram that had these huge horns. And then a little he-goat come. And this little he-goat goat just rams his head and hits and he kills this big old ram and this little he-goat comes and destroys him. And he ran into him the fury of his power and I saw him close to the ram and he was moved with a colicker against them and smote the ram and break his two horns and there was no power in the ram to stand before him but he cast him to the ground and stamped upon him and there was none that could deliver him out of his hand. This is Alexander the Great. And to prove that it's Alexander the Great, notice verse 8. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great. And when he was strong, Alexander the Great was 33 years old when he died, never losing a battle. The great horn was broken, for it came up four notable ones towards the four winds of heaven. When Alexander the Great died, he gave his kingdom to his four generals, and his four generals divided his kingdom. Just like the Bible said. Now, Why am I saying this? Well, in the battle of Thermopylae, the battle of the 300, there are no Christians. Not in that battle. In the battle of 300 between the Persians and the Greeks, there are no Jewish people involved. It is strictly secular people. 
But do you know that God knew that one day there was going to be an America? One day he knew there was going to be England. One day he knew it was going to be a Western society. And that Western society, its ideas and values were going to be born from Greece. And right now, Greece, the ideas of democracy and freedom, the ideas of what we have in Western civilization is a small little match, a small little fire. Have you ever tried to have a match out in the wind? It's hard to keep that thing lit. And God is holding it and he's protecting it until it could catch on fire and start the flames. And now even though it's trying to be put out by the rest of the world, God's protecting it. You say, well, the Greeks must be really good people. No, they had so many gods they didn't know what to do with. And all of their gods were perverts and crazy. It wasn't because they were good people. It's because God wanted a society to develop that would allow freedoms and courts and a rule of law that we now enjoy. You see, God allowed this to happen. And he was watching over it and he put people in place to allow us to enjoy the Western society we now enjoy. You see, I'm trying to tell you that God is just not the God of the Bible. He's just not the God of Christians. He's not just the God of Jewish people. He's the God of history. You see, you could say it like this. Instead of saying history, you could say his story because it's all about God. That just like the book of Esther, the book of Esther doesn't mention the name of God but you could see his hand all throughout that book. What do we see in this part of history? We may not see God directly involved where his name's being mentioned and people are saying, I'm doing this for the Lord, but we see his hand moving things in place. So how does this apply to you? God has put you here for such a time as this. It is no accident that you're here. I was just talking to a preacher several hours ago. He was telling me about a couple years ago he got a blood clot in his leg. And for 10 days he was in the hospital. And he was wondering since then his health is going down. And he said, I don't know why it happened. And I said, you know, there's God's unconscious preparation. There are choices that we make for ourselves. And there are choices that God makes for us. And I said, I love you, preacher. Let me tell you something. That when you were in the hospital, staring at the ceiling for those 10 days, you were just as much in God's will, staring at the ceiling in your hospital bed, as you were when you were healthy, knocking on doors and going to work. Why? Because God gave you that. And God knows what he's doing. There are choices that God makes for us. We don't choose to get sick. None of us would. If we could get a list of things that said, all right, pick a bad thing to happen. I don't want to pick any of them. We would pick the things that were the minimum inconvenience to us. But God doesn't give us the choice because he knows that. He knows that sometimes we need to go through things that are difficult, that are trying. So that way we know that we could trust God. And that God knows what he's doing. God doesn't do things by accident. He knows the events it took to get you to this place at this time. He knew what it would take to get you underneath a pastor who loves you so much. He knew what it would get you to take to get you to the place where you would start growing in your Christian life. He knew what it would take to get you to a place where you're concerned for other people's souls. There are choices that we make for ourselves. And there are choices that God makes for us. 
And there is a God who's sitting on the throne. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you've got the poochy lip disease where you say, nobody likes me, everyone hates me, think I'll eat some worms, woohoo. Where you get to the place where you're feeling sorry for yourself and saying it's so bad and it's so horrible. Why God? Why me? Well, I want to tell you that God's on the throne. He knows where you're at. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows how you got there. And he knows how you're getting through it. He just wants you to recognize there's a God who's willing to take you by the hand and go with you and lead you the way. You know, when we get to the place where we're feeling sorry for ourselves, it's because we're stopped looking at God. So my quick answer to you today, dear friend, look up, look up, look up, look up. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. That's all I want you to do today, dear friend. Looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Him. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 920- Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.